You're listening to the podcast of Anthem Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, visit us online at anthemcolumbia.com. We're going to talk about lostness today, and we're going to open our Bibles. That's what we do here. So Luke chapter 15. So if you've got a, a Bible or a smartphone, you can begin to open up to Luke chapter 15, um, and we're going to go to a story that probably is familiar to a number of people. And the topic is lostness, God's heart for lost. And when I say that, essentially it's just a, it's a word for those that are in sin, those that are far off, those that are broken and hurting. And again, this is heavy on my heart, this topic. We wanted to talk about the nations and, and missions and, and lostness seems to go in line with that as we were in this city of millions of people and it was marked by lostness. And so as you're opening up there, I just want to tell you, like in interacting with nearly 100 people, you would be surprised that so many, maybe this wouldn't surprise you, but so many thought, if I could just get some more money, then I'd be happy. If I could just get a good job. In fact, a number of the college students we interacted with is like, if I could just study in America, then my life would be complete. (laughs) I'm like, I don't think you know what you're saying, right? Like, but guys, we're in the city, and you talk about lostness. Everywhere you would go, um, every business, uh, our hotel, every place that you would enter at the front of the store or whatever it was had like a little shrine that would light up, had all these crazy lights, and on that, they would sacrifice like food or burn incense, and they had statues, and, and some of them worshipped ancestors or some of them just worshipped just false gods. And so you couldn't get away with it. You couldn't get a meal without walking past a literal altar to a false god just to get food. You couldn't go to your room without walking past this altar to a false god. And so you're, you're seeing this just throughout this entire city, people putting their hope in something other than the one true God. In fact, on our first day, I don't think the, the local workers there were um, you know, ignorant to what they were doing. They took us to a temple. And you walk into this like temple grounds and, uh, and you see these statues inside this building. Statues, again, built by human hands. And, and you walk in and uh, they have like a shop there where they're selling food or oils or whatever it is so that you can sacrifice it to these gods in the temple. And you walk in and there's like just noise and there are these temple workers just like taking people's things and like putting it on an altar. And there's just food. There's just things everywhere. And I'm watching as a young couple who, um, you know, this gal is pregnant and they go and they purchase these things and they hand it over to the temple worker in order for these things to be sacrificed. My guess is for this baby inside of them. And you're just looking at this, realizing like that will not do anything. Like that's not God. In fact, like in the next room, they had a symbol like, like that you would play. They had one so that they could hit it to wake their gods up in case they fell asleep. That's how small their God is. But yet the whole place seems to just fear and, and, and worship this little G God. In fact, it was to the point where um, a couple of our gals on the team, and again, I want to share some stories from her time and, and get her money's worth there, but a 
couple of gals on our team, you talk about the epitome of this lostness, ran into a gal in a coffee shop. They didn't intend to meet, but that's how a lot of our things went. You just smile and you get in conversation. And uh, uh, Laura and, and Marin um, ran into this gal who was clearly confused. She tried so many things, perhaps even these false gods, to fill her soul, but they wouldn't work. Nothing she could do could really fill the emptiness. And with strangers whom she just met, she begins to unpack just her story and tells them to the point where she was, could not find something to kind of attach herself with, something to give her worth. And so in that spot of desperation, had recently just tried to take her own life. And our gals are sitting there hearing this story. And I want you to understand how lost this place was. The gal, unfazed by that, telling them that she just tried to take her life recently, went on, and by God's grace, she was unsuccessful, but went on to say, you know what? For, for young people like me, the best thing for them would be suicide because there's just nothing really out there. The best thing, and it's just so many people here, and it's just so hard, the best thing would be for them to kill themselves. Do you, do you feel a little bit of that? Do you understand how lost this place is, Anthem Church, that, that a young gal that has her whole life before her would say, the best thing for, for people my age would be to just take their own life. That is how lost this city was. And so I want to stop before we get into the text, and I want to pray for that gal, our summer teams that are still there, engaging people, and that those people that are lost and, and hopeless would come to find hope in the one true God. So if you would, please pray with me. God, we pray for that gal as a whole church, lifting up her voice and, and ask that you would seek her out, that you would help her come to know you even today. God, that you would change her heart and she would come to find the hope that we have in you. God, we pray for our college students as they're actually probably getting ready to, to go to bed after a hard day. God, would you refresh them and would they continue to get to see fruit? Would they continue to get to help people who are lost be found by you? And so we just, as a church, lift them up. We thank you for the long-term workers that are there that are giving their life to reaching that place. And so we pray that you would strengthen them and you would continue uh, to go before them. And we just open our hearts, God, to what you would have in your scripture today. We just pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So today's question that we're answering, what's God's heart towards the loss? What would God say to that gal? What would God say to that city? What would God, what would his response be to that brokenness? And so we're going to look at Luke 15, and we're going to see three parables, but they're really in response to what we see in the first couple of verses. And so in chapter 15 of Luke, verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near, uh, near to hear him him being Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. I want to stop again so you understand Jesus is now going to go, he's going to call kind of a timeout. He knows they're grumbling. And what are they grumbling about? That, they, that Jesus would reach out to tax collectors, these people that would kind of rob from God's people, rob money, that, that he would eat with sinners, that he would receive them. And you have to understand in the Greek that receiving isn't like kind of like 
passively like receiving a phone call. It's more active, like a football player receives a kickoff, like he is looking for, he is seeking and searching out lost people. You think of the story of Zacchaeus where Jesus is walking along in a crowd and he's like, Zacchaeus, you, I'm coming to your house today. So it's this active receiving of the lost. And so he knows their grumblings. That is like these church people, the religious people, people in this kind of crowd would have been that context. And so Jesus is going to say, time out. I want, I want to help you understand why I do that. I want to help you understand God's heart for the lost. And so he tells three stories back to back to back about the lost and how God pursues, and he uses a story of lost sheep, lost coin, and a lost son. So as you look at your Bible, you see three stories addressing lostness. And so we're going to focus our energy on the last one, the parable of the lost son. Really, it's saying the same thing. It's just in greater detail. And so if you're taking notes, we're going to see three kind of sections in here. We're going to be able to unpack what is lostness. Use that word a little bit. But what does that mean, lostness? What does repentance look like? And the last section of it is the goodness of God. Let's unpack that. And so going to that story in verse 11, let's start reading what is typically known and referred to as the uh, the parable of the prodigal son. So this is a story Jesus is telling to church people. He says in verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Okay, we're going to stop there briefly. You understand what happened. There's, There's two sons, and the younger one goes to the father, and he says, you know, when you die, this share of the property is going to be coming to me, and so he's like, you're as good as dead to me. Why don't you just give it to me now? I can't wait. I, I don't want to sit around. Just give me what's coming to me right now. Imagine how hurtful and, and what that would have communicated to the father. But nonetheless, the dad gives him his inheritance. And so land would have been divided. Likely livestock would have been liquidated. Workers would have probably had to been let go as the son takes that and just cashes it out to go, in verse 13, go, gather, and go to a far country and live it up with reckless living. Reckless kind of defined as without thinking or caring about the consequences of an action. And so we're going to learn later in verse 30 that that means prostitutes, likely would have been drinking, party, just reckless living. I mean, it's unfortunate, but the reality is we live in a college town where you see people leave the authority of their family, come, and like the son, just want to live it up in this reckless living, not thinking about 
the consequences for their action. They're just doing it. How do you think that's going for him? Because <laughs> there's this reality. It's like you feel free, but it's, you're about as free as somebody who jumps out of a plane without a parachute. <laughs> like you feel the wind in your hair. Like this is amazing. But rest assured, at some point in the descent or on impact, you will realize that you weren't really free without a parachute. And so it is that, that you think you're free from God or, or that the college freshman thinks, I'm finally free until they get their, their grades back or until you know mom and dad call them with what's going on the credit card. And all of a sudden you realize that, that it was an illusion that you, he was never really free from the consequences of his actions. And you see that, that the, this freedom that's perceived catches up with him. And in verse 14, when he had spent everything, you have to understand, he literally spent a fortune on prostitutes and parties, spends a fortune on that, and a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So much so that verse 15, you see that he hired himself out to, and if you're reading in your, your Bible, you might have like a little like brackets with a letter in there. You see that? In mine, it's a letter B. And then you go down below and it shows you an alternative for like what could have been put there. The alternative is joined himself to. And honestly, that's closer to what it would have been in the Greek that he joined himself to one of the citizens of the country. And here's the, the reality of this, if you're taking notes. When you break your attachment to God, you will end up attached to another thing or another person. And so he was joined with the Father, and now he joined himself with the parties and everything else, and that's gone. And now he joins himself to one of the citizens working, feeding pigs. It's this reality that I think we have to come to grips with and understand. Everyone will join themselves to something or someone. That's just how we are created as human beings. No one is exempt from that. Everybody is going to live for something or someone. Does that make sense? Do you understand? And so uh, that's lostness. If you were to define it, it would it'd be this. That it's when we break our attachment with God and we attach ourselves to another thing apart from God. That's when you're lost and you attach yourself to something and that is not, it ends up in slavery, not sonship. And so we see the prodigal son do that. And so what is it that, that people attach their lives to apart from God? I know for me, by the age of 16, I'd already tried to attach myself to popularity. I'd tried to attach myself to sports, attach myself to relationships and that's how it works, right? That, that you, you try and, and make something God, and then you realize, wow, this is not working. And so what do you do? You go try and find another God. Am I the only one, right? You, you, can, you can go down this pattern over and over again, and you think, I was just talking to somebody who's like, yeah, we just bought a new house, and things break, right? There's like this thing like, this will make me happy. And then you get it, and you're like, no, <laughs> it doesn't actually. It doesn't fill you. You know why? Because you weren't intended for a new house. You weren't intended for to play sports your whole life. You were made in the image of God for God. And so attaching yourself to anything other than God will leave you empty and void. 
Does that make sense? You're created by God for God. And so lostness, people that are lost or people that are away are, are those that are simply just not attached to God. And it can be a number of, of different things. I'll tell you a little bit about my life. And sometimes it's, it's obvious that people are like, you're not with God. You're attaching yourself to something else. In fact, I was probably guilty of this back in the day. I think it was Nike that came out with these shirts that said like, football is life. And like the period on the, like the statement was like a little football. You know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one that owned one of these? Where <laughs> it's like, how much more clear can you be? Like, oh, like your priorities are screwed up. Um, so sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it's obvious that people are like, work is what I live for. Work is my God. Or money is relationships. Sometimes it's other things like a lake house or racing or club sports. It's those things. Sometimes it's people. It's, it's, a, it's a marriage or it's kids. Things, again, that aren't bad things, but they're not God. And so when you attach yourself to those things and you find your identity and your worth in those things, they will leave you broken and hurting. They can never fill you the way God intends to fill. And sometimes it's obvious as much as like the Nike shirt, you know, sometimes it's, it's less obvious. Sometimes people like their attachment seems to like shift because really they're saying, I'm, I want to be driven by comfort, whatever makes me most comfortable. Or sometimes it's, it's whatever the path of least resistance is, whatever gets me the most affirmation be it obvious or not, anything, attachment to anything apart from God will leave you longing. There will not be a lasting joy, a lasting peace, a lasting confidence that you can have in being attached to the Lord. And so here is the son, and I believe in God's grace, a, a famine hits and he realizes the thing that he is attaching himself to is quite literally leaving him hungry, broken, and distant. And that's, that's the reality. I forget even how that, that verse ends. Like, uh, and no one gave him anything. You know, it, it, There was no help for him. And so here he is in this distant spot. Lostness. The son is no longer with the father. Lost, hungry, and hurting. That's lostness defined. Attachment to anything other than God. Got it? So moving on to the next part repentance. What is the process of then realigning and attaching yourself back to God? That is repentance, turning from this and realigning with God. So what does that process look like? So as a former college pastor, we would do leadership interviews for students that wanted to be on student leadership. And so we at our church, we do a celebrate service like this, but a large part of what we do is what we call connection groups. That's where we get together in homes and we talk about scripture and, and share some food together and do life with a group of people. And so our college students, we have college connection groups led by students. And it's a lot of fun to see them leading their peers, sophomores leading these connection groups in the dorms with freshmen. And so it's a weighty position because in some regards, they're really shepherding people. So we do leadership interviews. We do leadership applications. In fact, the application at one point was 16 pages long. 
Again, this isn't like a paid position. Like people would voluntarily fill out a 16-page application, go through an hour-long interview, which apparently people say that I can be intimidating at times. I don't see it, but but there's like this intimidation as you get two staffers and a student, and you go through this interview process as you talk through your application and you ask these questions. I'm telling you, one of my favorite questions, and again, not rooted maliciously, but wanting to understand the weight of the position they're going to take, I would ask them, what is the first thing, someone who is lost, someone who doesn't know God, what's the first thing they need to understand in regards to the gospel, in regards to getting right with the Father? You understand the question? Like, what's, what do they need to understand? If you could speak to the, the prodigal son, what, what does he need to understand in order to begin this process? And there's a number of things, but oftentimes, someone that hasn't faced with that question is like, they need to understand that they are broken, that they are sinful, they, they are distant from God. Don't raise your hand if you agree, right? Because... That's true. All those things are absolutely true. But the question is, what's the first thing that they need to understand in regards to their lostness, in regards to being able to come home? What's the, the first thing? You understand that, that that answer of they need to understand their brokenness, that they're sinful, that they're distant. That would be equivalent. Can you imagine in the older brother in this scenario coming to the lost brother that's far off in that country and essentially saying, hey, Hey, you and dad, it seems like your relationship is broken. You're distant. You realize you squandered everything, right? Look pretty hungry. Are those things not true? No, they're absolutely true. But the question is, is that the starting point for helping him come home? I don't think it is, and it's certainly not in the context of this story. What is the, what is the starting point? What what is true, and again, don't hear me in any way minimize the responsibility of that person that's distant. <laughs> that's them walking away from God. Don't, I'm not minimizing sin, I, I, none of that. I'm just saying, first thing that we see the son that causes him to turn, verse 17, it says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your higher servants. Do you see in verse 17, there's this coming to himself. And what does he realize in verse 17? He realizes his father is good. That he's so gracious that his father's servants, the least of those, have more than enough to eat. He understands the, the goodness of who it is that he left. Does that make sense? He was a part of that family. He knew what he walked away from. He knew how wealthy, how generous, how patient his father was and the freedom that he gave him. He understands that. He remembers who it is that he walked away from. He gets that. And, and so that's the part that clicks. And guys, that's where the Bible starts. In Genesis, we see that God is a loving creator. If you go up to someone and say, you know, I think there, there's a great deal of brokenness between you and, and Hitler, the Nazi party. People will be like, good. Like, I don't want to be identified with that. But all of a sudden we say, man, there's a loving God. And here's the story, because this really happened in Southeast Asia, where I was. 
This happened as I'm sitting in, in this English club with these gals. And let me set the context. I'm taking way too much time on this, but I want you to understand, we were invited to this English club that we weren't hosting. It was another teacher that I met who didn't believe in God. And she's like, here, you can come teach my people English, which we want to talk about English, but we want our English words to be talking about something else. And so we're like this, how do we do this? And so I'm with the other guys on the team. And honestly, we just went to the spot where we went to this story and we just honed in on, there is a God who created you, who's numbered the hairs on your head, who loves you, who desires to have relationship with you, who has made you in his image. And as I'm telling this as a father of four daughters, as I'm telling this to a couple of girls in this English club, I'm starting to tear up just talking about how much God loves. I didn't even get to the good part where he loves so much that he would send his son, but I'm just talking about God's love and I'm starting to tear up and here's these girls. They don't know God and they're starting to tear up. And we're just having like this moment at this English club in this coffee shop. And guys, you, you have to understand that, that in reaching the lost, that's what we're talking about today. You can make the connections. We're talking about lostness, God's heart for the lost. It's going to come to a point where it's like, what should our response be? But look at, look at what is helpful in repentance, in restoring that right relationship. It's easy to beat up on the younger brother. He knows he's hungry. He knows he's far off. Man, this gal, like talking about suicide, she would have to be aware of her brokenness, but do they know, have we done a good job of painting the picture of who God is, the love that he has? As I'm saying, I, I, I want to challenge us to be about that. Telling them who it is that they've walked away from, who it is that we're trying to restore them to. And so he gets that. And, and, and I love how the ESV translates verse 17. It says, he came to himself. John Piper has a great quote on this. And so I'm just going to read it. And it's on the screens. It says, first, he comes to himself. When you are alienated from God, you are always alienated from yourself. You can't know yourself or relate properly to yourself if you are running from the one who made yourself for himself. You were made by God in the image of God for God. These are three main things about your identity as a human being. You are made by God, like God, for God. Therefore, conversion is a coming to yourself as well as coming to God. It is discovering where you came from and who you are and why you exist. Running from God is always a running from ourselves. Repentance is waking up to this truth. The son wakes up. He comes to himself. He realizes his identity could be one of the, of, of the, the, with the father, that he's a son. He realizes who his father is and simultaneously realizes the relationship that could be his. And so that causes this, this ability to see his sin, to feel it. And now he wants to turn from home, turn for home and own it. Does that make sense that, that he instantly, he sees it, it connects, he feels it. And you see the immediate response. You know what I'm going to do? I know how good my father is. I know what his servants eat. I'm going to, I'm going to go home <laughs> and I'm going to confess my sin, what I've done, and entrust myself to my good father to receive me back. Even being a servant, the, the generosity that he shows is more than enough. 
And so he owns it. And I'm thinking, guys, for me, I know personally, and I'm not going to speak for you. For me, seeing my sin is, isn't always the problem. Feeling it for me is certainly not the problem. Usually there's a deep brokenness. But that ability to own it, at least for me, that's one of the hardest parts. It's one thing to see it and, and to feel it, but to actually vocalize that to the person I've wronged and vocalize it back to God, that's the hard part. And I think there's a good warning for us here that, that, that repentance takes those three things, to see it, to feel it, and to truly own it. And I think we've been talking to, to those that are more of the found sons, but I, I'd be remiss, I think, to not recognize that there might be people in this crowd with sin that you have not owned. In regards, it's unconfessed. It's not truly, fully repented of. You felt bad, but it stopped there. It stopped that feeling bad, and, and we see that it, it can't stop there. There has to be this owning it. In fact, if you just feel bad, 2 Corinthians 7.10, you can write this down for later, says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. If you just feel bad, but it doesn't lead to full repentance, saying then you're not truly forgiven, and ultimately it leads to eternal separation, to which the question, I think, is, well, how do I know if I've, I've fully really own that and been forgiven. I think here's a very easy metric. Can you talk about it freely and openly? Can you make much of it? I know you're not probably proud of it, but can you say, hey, this is what I've done. These are some of the details with it. I'm so broken about it, but I know God has forgiven me and I've sought restoration with others and I've been forgiven. Can you talk about it? Because if you can't talk about it, if you can't open up and make much of the forgiveness that you've received, the question is, have you really received forgiveness from that? And I think that that's where the Satan is so strategic and tricky that he would want people to not experience that last step of really owning it and be it pride or, 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 or whatever it is that would keep somebody from really owning it. Say, I feel bad. I've talked to God in private about it. I really don't need to go get restoration. I'm saying, please, don't let Satan keep you distant. Please, don't, don't stop that last step. Because again, I, I've been in this context and seen people have unconfessed sin of pornography, masturbation, even a context where I got to interact with somebody personally that had concealed an abortion. Been in context where there's been people in adultery and never owning it, never truly repenting of it. And the, the reality is, is, is how can you stand before God? Because you will have to own that someday. You will stand before God Almighty on the day of judgment and have to give an account and how can you on that day say, oh God, would you please forgive me? I want to spend eternity with you. I trust you. And what seems to be clear in scripture that if you are unrepentant right now, what makes that count anymore? Romans 2, 5, I think it is. It says, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, 
You're storing up wrath for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. I'm telling you, I would beg you, repent. Because you have to understand this last part is, is that there's lostness. And you can repent, which means you see it, you feel it, and you own it. And you can do all that because this last part, who are you owning it to? God. His goodness, do you understand? That's, that's the thing that makes the son be able to turn because he says, Man, I know how good my father is. His servants are, are cared for. Because this is being told, a story of redemption being told by Jesus who would redeem us with his blood shed on a cross. Do you understand that? That, that he's speaking of the, the goodness of the Father, and you're looking at a parable. It's like, we get to see that played out, and it, you see the goodness of God, yes, in this parable, but in reality, the goodness of God ultimately on display through Jesus Christ living a perfect life, yet dying on a cross, his blood being shed for our sins so that we can be forgiven. And so, yeah, there's lostness, it requires repentance in that coming home, that last part. You have to understand that God is so good, that he loves the world so much that he would send his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In John 14, 6, it says, Jesus would say, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That process of repenting and coming home is through Jesus. It's confessing, Jesus, I have sinned against you. It's confessing to others, I have sinned, I have done wrong, I deserve to be punished. But I am throwing myself, like the Son, at the goodness of the Father, and I'm entrusting that he will forgive. Come on, what do you think the answer is going to be here for the Son? What do you think the answer would be for you if you cast yourself on the goodness of God, who delighted to send his own Son to be crushed for our sin? And I think it's only the lies from the pit of hell that would cause her to be like, well, I just don't know. He's already answered it. <laughs> lies are, are proof that, that God is a loving God who is so quick to forgive. And so would you just own it and cast yourself on the goodness of who God is? And we see the son do that. He, he starts going through, and I get the fear. Every time it seems like as I sin and I go back to God, it's God, I've sinned against you. And you're wondering, oh, I hope you forgive me. And you see him in verse 18 and 19, like, oh, oh man, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of the hired servants. And as, as if the father doesn't even hear that, doesn't even acknowledge. I think it's important that the son owns what's true. But it's so quickly followed up by verse 20. Uh, sorry, that he rose and came to his father while he was still a long way off. The father saw him, felt compassion ran and embraced him and kissed him. And again, here, here the son thought of it in the foreign land and now he's practiced it, so he's got to get it out. And he imagine he's a little thrown by that. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, just like he practiced it. But time out. Again, you see that while he's still a long way off, the father sees him. You have to understand this about God. He's not like us and how we keep our households. God has everything under control. He's not frantic, running around. God has his house, his kingdom, his rule and reign is firmly established where he is seemingly given to scanning the horizon to while still a long ways off, he sees the lost son coming home. 
In fact, that's what Jesus is picking up on with these parables. He's saying, you, you talk about me actively receiving the lost? I got all the time because everything is under control. And so here I am looking out. And he sees his son while he's far off, and he feels compassion, that concern for his suffering, that pity, that sympathy. He hurts for his son. And he's motivated by love and compassion to run, embrace him, and kiss him. And it reminds me of like those soldier coming home videos, right? Where soldiers get off the plane and they're in the line and kids can't contain themselves. And they just, soldiers break ranks. You've seen the video and you've cried. Come on now, it was Memorial Day recently. You know what I'm talking about. But this is like the reverse where it's like the father just breaks ranks, goes against all cultural norms and just runs out to his son. And again, I was pointing out earlier, out of order here, but you see the, the son sticking to the plan of confessing, but we see the heart of the father here in verse 22. On face, he says, but the father said to his servant, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. Bring the best robe, put a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet. Let's have a party. Why? Because what was lost is found. Do you understand the richness of, of God's mercy and his grace? And you see it here in a story through a party. And, and again, alluded to it all message long, but we see it fully in Jesus Christ. His blood being shed for us so that we can be redeemed. And so if there's any question, I think, as we want to engage the lostness, you have to understand what is lostness? It's attachment to anything other than God. And people will be attached to something else. And if they can't find something else to be attached to, they're likely having pretty deep, dark thoughts. You will be attached to something or someone. You were created to be attached to God. The response is to recognize that, to see it, to feel that brokenness, and truly repent and own it to come back. And that process of owning it, that process of repentance, is fully seeking restoration with God, which we can't do apart from the blood of Jesus, and seeking restoration through others. And again, even on that, I would say, is it going to be perfect? Is it going to hurt? Absolutely. It's not going to be perfect. It's going to be hard. That's what sin does is it causes brokenness. And I fear that, that some people that have heard that, that have unconfessed, unrepented sin, like that's just going to be messy. Again, what's the other option? To die with that and stand before God? I would urge you again to repent, trusting that God is good. And even the pain is but temporary, knowing that it is the way, you know, through confessing and repenting is a means to eternal life with God forever. Guys, I am challenged. This, this scripture doesn't end with a, a go and do likewise. Jesus, his whole point is addressing the grumblings of God's heart towards the lost. And Anthem Church, I just challenge you. The, the call at the end of this isn't like, so who feels led to go overseas and do missions now or... Who really wants to reach their neighbor, their friend, their coworker? All we're doing today is saying, look at God's heart towards lost. 
Do you see how God responds in love, seeking, actively receiving, pursuing? That's the God we have come to know, be forgiven by, and serve. Y'all are smart enough to then connect the dots. Like, what does that mean in your life? Guys, I want to be respond in worship. We're going to respond in communion, uh, communion. So, band, you guys can come up. But as we take communion, what I would encourage you, uh, first, if you have unconfessed sin, sin that is not repented of, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, his body broken, his bloodshed. If you have not asked God to forgive you and you have not sought forgiveness of others, and even Todd taught last week, if there's brokenness, I would implore you, please don't take communion. Communion is for those that say, I, my trust is in God. My attachment is to him. I follow him. And so it's for the believers that identify with God. And so as we do this, as we identify and we remember what Jesus has done, I would encourage you as you go up during these songs, what you'll do is you'll take a piece of bread, you'll break it, you'll dip it. And again, it's signifying Jesus's body broken, his blood shed for our sins. And you can take that. But as you, as you make your way there, I want you to just, if you can briefly remember the lostness God called you out of. For me, it's not hard to go back to 16, 17 years old and think about all the things I tried to attach myself and the emptiness that was there. And as you remember that and go to communion, take communion, and then just to now just speak over yourself the joy that is ours in being attached to the one true God and the hope we have. And as you respond in worship, I think it's pretty easy then to go from there and say, so what should my response be in today in regards to God's word? Does that make sense? And so I'm going to pray. And then in your own time, there's two communion stations. Just make your way there and uh, remember what Jesus has done. So God, we do thank you for your word and uh, that you are a good, loving father that actively receives lost of whom which we all were or even are. And so God, thank you that you would want to have attachment with us, that you would want to call us your children. And you would do that by sacrificing your son. God, your mercy, your grace is, is beyond full comprehension. And we just praise you and we thank you. And it's our joy to respond in worship as being those who are lost but now found and being given purpose. And so, God, it's our joy to respond in worship this morning and remember you through communion. Amen.